Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Kevin Maney, advisor at Category Design and co-author of Play Bigger. In this episode, we're going to dive into the learnings that came out of writing Play Bigger, a book that I recommend to all of our startups. Kevin talks about how to define and own a category, as well as the timeline of successful companies that ultimately go public. So what is category design? Well, most companies start out with a product idea, and Kevin tells us that companies, successful companies, that is, start out designing the need and the category. So this involves asking a really simple question. What problems do you really want to solve? The biggest theme or so what that I hope you can take away from this conversation for entrepreneurs is that you need to spend the time defining the problem, finding that category and defining it and aligning your team to help drive the process. If you set that North Star early, you have a better chance of attracting customers and convincing others that your journey is worth it. Ultimately, you can become a category king. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Maney. All right. So today we have with us Kevin Maney, who's a journalist, author, and co-founder of Category Design Advisors. His most recent book, which he co-authored, is uh, came out in June 2020 and is called Unhealthcare, A Manifesto for Health Assurance. Also has co-written a book called Unscaled, How AI and a New Generation of Upstarts Are Creating the Economy of the Future. But the reason we're talking today is because of his book that has influenced so many people called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Kevin's also been a contributor to Newsweek, Fortune, The Atlantic, Fast Company, Strategy and Business, Harvard Business Review, CNN, ABC News, and others. And to my delight and surprise, I also found out that Kevin's side hustle is as a singer-guitar player with a New York City rock band called Total Blam Bam. Blam Blam. Awesome. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're recording this from my office and not home, my home studio with all the guitars in the background this time. So that, that was awesome to learn. Yeah, no, actually, uh, yeah. So we were, if otherwise we'd be able to, I grab mine, you grab yours. We could do, do the whole thing in song or something. We, we, yeah, <laughs> we could have treated or bored people with our, our guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> so you and I met a couple of years ago. We at Esther Dyson's PC Forum reunion. That's right. In Scottsdale, which uh, you and I probably both attended several times back in the you know 90s, I guess. Yeah. Great group of people. It was really fun to see everybody there. That's when I, that's when I learned about your background and play bigger. I read play bigger. It's actually looking across my room. It's at the top of my book stack where I meet entrepreneurs. I recommend it to every single entrepreneur. And I can't tell you how many times they come back to me later and say that book changed my life. Oh my gosh. And I'm a big customer driven design kind of guy. That's the the work I used to do in Asia and other places. So it was, it aligned very well with kind of what I had learned in my experiences. So welcome. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about Play Bigger and the uh, original inspiration for it? Sure. Well, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, a little bit of the background story. And thanks, Tim, for all of that. I mean, uh, for the introduction and, and for um, having me on. Uh, I, I wrote it with three other guys who are Silicon Valley veterans. Uh, they've been around the block and they had already started an advisory firm called Play Bigger. And they invited me to dinner one night in, in San Francisco. And 
in their advisory firm was they just had so they had some theories, things that they worked out, you know, worked out throughout their careers. And there was, uh, but it was all sort of centered around this idea that you know, basic truism in digital markets, there quickly becomes a winner-take-all scenario in most categories. And you know, I mean, if you got a if you got a digital market where everybody and there's no there's abundance, not scarcity, it means that everybody in the world can choose whatever is the best or the category winner. So they do, and you end up with you know, markets dominated 80% by one company. And so kind of work, working backwards, if that's true, then that means that if you're starting a company or if you, even if you have an older company, if you're in somebody else's category, you're scraping around for like that other, some of that other 20%, and that's the best you're ever going to do. Why would you do that? Instead, go through a thought process and kind of a methodology to think about how can you find and define and then ultimately own a category of your own uh, where you're the guy who's as 80%. And 80% of a smaller category is probably better than 5% of a bigger category. It depends on size, but generally speaking, right? You're in a better position. So if you kind of do that reverse engineering and then say, well, okay, well, what, uh, what's a, what do you, what, what kind of thought process do you have to go through to, uh, to really get to like, what is what's, where's a new category that we could go after, and how do we how do we own it for ourselves? So back, we were kind of talking about all this at the dinner, I, and they said maybe there's a book here. I thought I thought you know from all I knew from journalism, from covering technology for twenty some years, that they were on the right track, and said let's explore it. And it turned out to be a really you know interesting topic and to explore, and it, there was really something there. And then at the same time, the four of us just gelled, and it was actually one of the most fun times I ever had in my career, actually working on this book with those guys. Ultimately, what the book ends up being is a, a methodology uh, that we call category design for doing exactly what I just said, thinking through this idea of how do you find, define, and ultimately own a category of your own. Turns out that it's just a really great way for a company to think about its strategy. There's probably a hundred or thousand other ways for companies to think about their strategy, but for some reason, this one seems to resonate and and really seems to work. So, I mean, we've, like you said, when you're opening, I mean, I've written a whole lot of books. I've never had the satisfaction of having a book where people are evangelical about it. I mean, it's just crazy. And it's so, so nice and so satisfying to know that. That's awesome. Yeah. The, uh, it seems like there's some similarities between, you know, like this podcast, Fast Frontiers, is about how innovation cycles are accelerating, right? They get faster and faster. Yeah, yeah. And it, it seems like in a similar way with categories, categories are defined potentially faster now because distribution is essentially free, right? With digital distribution. But also this phenomenon that there tends to be one category king versus, you know, the top three. Right. And that's also changed. What, what, is that a fair comparison? Yeah, it is. As part of this exercise, we tried to um, use data to try to understand some things and and prove some points. And there was one surprising thing that we, that popped out. So we we ran we pulled data from thousands of venture back companies over the last thirty years and just looked for patterns if we could think of it. And and this one kind of interesting thing popped out, which was that. Since 2000, go 
since 2000 companies that that uh, went public when they were between six and 10 years old, like they created enormous value for their shareholders. Companies that went public before they were six years old tended to either kind of flatline or, or tank. And then we looked at that and we looked at that over time and saw that it, that six to 10 year slot was uh, over time was moving shorter and shorter, but wasn't collapsing completely. Like, you know, you think, so, so, so basically what this ends up showing or what we interpreted it as, and we took it to like venture um, capitalists and to investment bankers, who said the pattern fits like what they're intuitively new. And we kind of tease it out to the idea that this was kind of a pattern of category creation that, that somewhere around six years old, five or six years old, once a category is that, at that stage is when the public finally catches on and the category goes on a rocket ride. If a company goes public in that span of time when the category is just taking off and the obvious category king is starting to be, um, become known, then an investment in that company is likely to pay off big time. Because you're catching the category king on the wave up in a category. What ha happens a lot of times Prior to that six-year mark or five-year mark, companies go public at three years or something like that. Well, a lot of them may not turn out to be the king of that category. Somebody else is, and that company collapses or goes away. Or the category doesn't seem to turn out to be as much of a big deal as you know people thought at first. A good example of that was the uh, uh, you know all these sort of you know, you know couponing companies that went public at three years old, and the Groupon went public at three years old and just tanked because the category didn't turn out to be what everybody thought it was going to be. Hmm. As a VC, you know, if your business plan doesn't show you able to go public within, you know, six to 10 years or seven years, then you're not doing, you know, you're, you're missing something. But mm -hmm. the, the point you're bringing up is also interesting, which I used to call a bake time, mm -hmm. you know, for software. Like, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a certain number of customers all using the same thing, then you don't have a product yet. Yeah. yeah so right, there's a certain right. bake time that you need in the market. It sounds like before it really is, defined. Exactly. And, and by the way, so we ran, we, we split it out and ran for um, B2B companies versus B2C. And obvious thing is B2C companies had a shorter break time because it's a low cost thing. Consumers can choose to adopt something much more quickly than a company buying a big thing that's going to run the enterprise. Yep. Makes sense. But ultimately there's, so there's a, another great book called the evolution of new markets by Paul Gorosky, this economist who lived in the UK and in, in the US. And he studied the evolution of categories and mapped them and how, and there turns out to be this pattern that seems to happen every time a new category appears. But one of the things that he was emphatic about is that there's a, there's a public psychology factor involved. People have to get comfortable with something before they choose what he calls a dominant design. So, you know, usually there's a bunch of different versions of a, something that's popping up. Um, the public has to get comfortable enough to, to glom onto a dominant design. And once that dominant design gets chosen, everybody feels even more comfortable because now you know that thing is not going to get replaced by something different in a year. So if I buy this, I don't have to throw it away in a year and get the different version or whatever. And that's when these, these things take off. You to the, well, well, distribution models and everything else can get you know shorter and shorter, and you can you can develop products faster and faster, and all those things. There's an element of you can't change human psychology as much as you can change the how fast you can 
build yeah. and distribute products. Well, psychology and it sounds like network effects, right? So, you know, when Uber first came out, maybe been apprehensive, maybe didn't trust it, but after three friends tell me they just got out of an Uber, exactly. Great. Right. Well, maybe I should try Uber, right? Right. Yes, that's yeah, true. So there's like right. a density issue. But one one of the things I loved uh, being a customer driven design kind of person. I believe your starting point is, you know, it's not about being first to market, it's the first to define the problem. Yeah, it is. Uh, can you well, talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So the, the, the core thing that we do with a company at the beginning is work and work and work at this question, this very simple question of what problem do you really solve? And it's amazing how hard that question is and how much thinking it right. produces when you actually like, and especially when you're really disciplined about saying, you know, no, no, you're describing what you do. You're not describing what the core problem, what's, what's that problem that somebody wakes up with a knot in their stomach and has to solve, and you're the one who's going to solve it. It's a it really hard question. It's a, a large percentage of, especially tech companies, because people say, wow, look what I can do. Right. And all of a sudden they think they have a company and it must be 70 or 80% of the time. These companies are focused on the solution. Wow, look what I made. Right. And hasn't exactly. really thought about, maybe they thought about it intuitively what the problem was, but they didn't really get into analyzing it qualitative and quantitatively to understand what's the real problem. Yep. That's true. No, that's really true. And so we, that's, that's a core question that we start with is like, what, problem do you really solve? I mean, we've had to get a leadership team in a conference room and spend four or five hours just on that quick question alone. But when you get the answer, it's incredibly enlightening and you can build from there. So what would you say to somebody who said, well, wait a minute, how about like, you know, Steve Jobs and, and the iPhone, you know, people didn't, what happens if people don't recognize the problem? Okay. Well, I got a story. So let, let, let's actually use the iPad because I know this story quite well from yeah. retelling. One of the things we talk about with the problem statement is that to find a new category, there are two good ways to do it. One is to, to solve a problem, in a, to solve an old problem in a way people didn't think it could be solved. So people know the problem. They just didn't think there was anything they could do about it. And, and so you're coming along and saying, oh, we can't. There's a, there's a different version that is, to tell people that they have a problem they didn't even know they had. I love that one. And I think Steve Jobs was actually wonderful at that. And so when he comes out, he's going to introduce the iPad and he, it, this was actually at the unveiling. And he goes out and he puts up on the screen on one side, an image of an iPhone and on the other side, an image of a, of a MacBook. And he says, well, we're in a new uh, media universe now. And it's a, it's new this new world of digital media where we're consuming um, TV shows and movies, books, music. Everything is coming to us digitally. You've got this phone, which is cool, but it's too small to really watch. You know these the this digital content on. And you've got this laptop, and it's too big because it's not, you can't really like sort of lounge on the couch in front of the fireplace or whatever and use your laptop to watch something. And so we're introducing this, and you literally use the word introducing this new category that sits in between called the tablet. Our version is an iPad. So what he was doing was he was telling us that, reminding us of all these things we probably already knew the pieces of, that there's all these digital content things are happening, but telling us that, you know what, you, oh, you're starting to consume all this digital content you don't 
really have a good way to do it. And then you start, you go, you know, well, actually he's right. You know, I mean, his phone sucks looking at a movie on that and the laptop's full, whatever. And so I guess I want an iPad. I never knew I did before, but Steve Jobs just told me why I did one. Uh, so that's, that's a version of, of, find, of being able to describe to people a problem they didn't even know they had. It, that's funny because it's funny you make you mentioned that example because of what you mentioned earlier with the network effects and psychology. When it came out, I was skeptical, and I'm a gadget guy, but I'm like, oh, you know, another gadget, <laughs> tablets. But it wasn't until sitting, you know, sitting on an airplane, which you and I do a lot, and again, probably about the third time the person next to me had an iPad, mm -hmm. and I saw them working and how nice it was. I was like, okay, I got to get it, and now right, I wouldn't right. go without one. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what kind of tips could you give entrepreneurs in trying to figure that out? So another thing we talk about when we work with companies, and actually this is, is not in the book. There's another great, another great book um, called Where Good Ideas Come From by Steven Johnson. One of the concepts he uses in the book is something called the adjacent possible. So he, he said there's, there's, the, there's the realm of, there's the realm of the, what exists, the possible, right? And, and those are things that technology is already good at and that society or we as people already accept and have adopted into our lives. So in today, you know, a TV set or a laptop is well in that possible range. And then there's this other, you know, universe outside of that, which is the not yet possible. And that's, you know, technology still a little iffy and, you know, it doesn't quite work right. We're still skeptical of it. Maybe it's still the, some early, early adopters, you know, something like a, you know, Oculus virtual virtual reality headsets, but then there's this band between them that he calls the adjacent possible, which is just beyond what we as people like understand or can accept, just a little beyond what technology has always been able to do. But it's there; it's possible; it's tangible. Uh, as, as it, it takes somebody to show you show it to you, but it's, when we talk to companies, we say, okay, well, if you're talking about creating a product or a service that's well within that possible, in that existing bubble, it's not very interesting. You know, you're probably entering somebody else's market, you're gonna scrape some market share. If you, but if you can look out and see how the world should be, but can't be yet because people don't quite understand it, technology doesn't quite do it, but you're convinced that the world has to be that way. And then look backwards and find where the adjacent possible is that, that can lead you in a straight line to that vision. And let's, let, let's define that adjacent possible category. But that turns out to be a really effective way to help them think because now you're forcing somebody to think beyond what exists. You're forcing them to think about how the world should be if it only could. And, and then work backwards to how can we make that happen you know, starting you know, it very soon and then push it out to there. Do you remember what would be a good example of that? Well, let's see. I mean, um, what, I, I mean, when Bezos um, uh, at Amazon dreamed up AWS, I actually had the, I was working for USA Today at the time. I was just technology columnist. I had interviewed Bezos, you know, over the years anyway. And I was at a technology conference in 2006. I got a call on my cell phone from this PR person and saying, you know, can you come up to the suite, whatever it was, you know, Jeff's up there, he wants to tell you about something that they're in, uh, introducing. And so he sat me down and he talked me through this thing that he was calling the elastic compute cloud. 
about you know computing by the SIP, and those these were all phrases he was using. Now, the idea of you know cloud computing that you could buy with your credit card or any that was not in any it was not in any realm of the possible. And in fact, I ended up looking across the table at it. He took like twenty minutes trying to explain this thing to me, and I. I said, I, you know, well, how in the world are you going to tell the public about this? And then he, he said, well, that's why you're here. But, <laughs> but he clearly under, uh, understood that the world should be able to do this. A startup should be able to pull out a credit card with a couple of guys in a garage, buy all those capabilities and, 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 and just go and just start doing it. But the ability to do that didn't yet exist. And, and he had to start with something that people could understand a little bit more. So that's why all this language about computing by the SIP and all this kind of stuff, you know, but clearly, I mean, this was, this was something that the way the world, you know, eventually was supposed to be, you know, that's an example of getting, you know, getting on that boat early. Right. That's a great example. One, one of the things, one of the examples from your book that I use a lot with entrepreneurs on defining the problem, uh, maybe you can share this example was, uh, and, and, not just defining it, but the marketing that they're doing in the early days was Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Can you tell that story? The idea of, that a corporation would put its data on somebody else's computer through the cloud, that was like, that was what was really sort of out there as an idea when, when Benioff got going. And yeah, we, cel we celebrate Salesforce in the book as, as one of the great category creation stories. And because, you, you know, Benioff went out there and he said, started telling companies that the, these giant CRM systems that they installed were a problem. You know, companies up to that were thinking these were that CRM thing was a solution, but the fact that they had to install this complicated software that cost a whole lot of money and often broke down and, and was difficult to train people to use and all this stuff. And, uh, and so he defined that as a problem that companies didn't really know they had. And, and, but of course, once he, they, he would say that, they said, well, yes, I guess that is a problem, but what's the solution? Well, so he says, I have the solution. It's actually, you let us run all of that, just connect to, a, to our computers and, and through the cloud and all the software updates and all that stuff happens and we do it, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he consolidated all of that into that very simple, no software Slogan, and that, that, and that, that was symbol. like the little no smoking sign. Little no smoking software. sign with software. So it in the wasn't middle. a wasn't a Salesforce logo, it, right? It was it was the problem was was the image and the message. That's right, that's exactly right, right. And which and we tell companies today that in a lot of cases it's more powerful to market the problem, to market essentially market the category than it is your product. You. You, you convince people they have this problem that nobody can solve but you. And, and you say, hey, it's a solution. I've got this. You know, aren't, aren't we great? We're going to help you out. And it implies you understand it. It implies it you understand it. Trust and That's right. right. You know, we, we, tell, uh, we, we tell companies all the time, be a, you know, be a category, not a product. And, know, you know, and know that... Know that um, Creating a category is different from creating a product. Creating a category is about opening a space that you know others are going to come into, and that's fine. I mean, you just want to make sure you're always the one who stays on top and is that dominant design and you know becomes the king of this category. But but you know, a category prospers when there's others in it. Well, and when you're when you frame your business that way, 
you're likely to be in business for a longer period of time because you're not focused on your product. You're, it, right. it gives you the freedom and flexibility to adapt by constantly being in touch with and aware of the problems because the problems change. And Jeff Bezos has also done a great job of that and has talked about that. He says, as long as people are dissatisfied with things, we're going to be in business. Right. <laughs> That's right. Right, right. So what are the... So we we invest, for example, companies when they have early signs of decent product market fit, they have maybe about a million in revenue. What are the best ways for companies at that stage or coming up to that stage uh, to go about understanding their category? What, what, what's sort of the, the process or the protocol that you would suggest they go through in those early days? I, I would say that most every company does not start out thinking along the lines of a category. Most start out with a product, Somebody, you know, says I can. I, I have an idea for something I can build. I, well, there actually seems to be two ways companies get started, and so, so some, a lot of companies start out with, you know, some engineers say like, you know, I, I, I have an idea for this thing I can build. It's going to be really cool. Whatever. There are another set of people who uh, see the problem first, and and say, you know, I'm going to try to solve this thing, and then they hire engineers to build that that thing. I think that's a minority from what my experience has been, but, you know, but those, those seem to be the two ways that startups really happen either way, like what we've discovered. So we've done a lot of work with companies that were somewhere between two and three years old, maybe just between somewhere between series A and C, you know, which means that they got started and they already got some traction and they did kind of what they started out to do. And then they get to this point where, where they're a, a little bit unsure of what's next. And, and that's a, that's seems to be a really good moment in time to have this category conversation to, to really dive into it because, you know, you have enough. And, and those are also the moments when, when we go in and we'll get, you know, you get 10 people of the leadership team around the table and you ask all 10 of them what the company does and where it's going next. And they're all 10 different answers. What the company needs at that point in time is to decide on what is the category, what is our North Star, and have every one of those 10 people agree on it. And this category conversation is a good forcing function for that. Um, because if you all have it together and you 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 dr drive it and drive it until you all agree that you where you that you've got it, now now you've got you know the fly a flag on the hill to go towards. So, so important. I was just actually just before we got together today talking about that exact thing with uh, another one of our CEOs, uh, yeah. because obviously if you're not aligned, you're just flapping around in the wind, right? It's just so hard to make progress. Any final thoughts for uh, entrepreneurs out there who are, who are working through this category design issue? No, you know, I, I, what, I thought I'd tell one story about uh, agi so agility with this sort of category process, something that has become front and center because of the times we're going through this whole, you know, COVID craziness. There's a company we worked with that I'm going to give a lot of credit to in, in, in that realm. So it's, um, it's a company called Snack Nation out of uh, LA. And, um, you know, some of your listeners who um, are in uh, tech companies may actually, you know, know of them because what they had they had a business of of uh basically putting this you know sort of the snacks and lunch you know in, in break rooms at 
and mostly at these sort of 200 person millennial tech companies. So the, the snacks that they sourced were all like micro brand, you know, funky, cool snacks. And then they had this technology backend um, where people could, you know, they, with surveys and answer questions so they could start to like personalize to that company, what kinds of snacks and things like that so, yeah, that that company wanted. And they were doing really well with us. You know, business was taking off and they, and we did some category work with them. COVID hits, offices go away. Um, and, uh, and suddenly they're faced with this crisis of like, well, this category is now looks a lot different than it did before. And so we did some rethinking with them and, and realizing that, um, in this universe where, where companies are virtual or some sort of blending of virtual and in office or whatever, the idea of, of, of the company culture starts to become fragmented or difficult to hold together. And there's lots of things that hold the culture together. Some of it's, you know, philosophy and ideals and all those kinds of things. But some of it is, you know, the physical spaces and the physical aspects of a culture of, you know, what the office is like. And, and, uh, and yes, this, you know, the snacks everybody has in the snack room and, or the, uh, you know, or the little gifts that get handed out when somebody does a good job. So um, we, we came up with this, this phrase, I think it's a really cool phrase, that companies now need a cloud culture. And, and that cloud culture is part, like I say, part ideals and philosophy, part, you know, tying people together with technology or whatever, but you still need that physical aspect that helps tie that, that cloud culture together. Now people are all at home. So how do you do that? Well, let's, re let's change this so that we're sending the same kinds of snacks that people had in the office and that, at that company to their homes and, and add other things like, you know, um, if there's little, little rewards for, you know, doing, you know, getting, hitting a sales quote, blah, 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 stuff like that. They used to package those up. So they, so now everybody has the same thing coming to the, you know, their house and sitting next to them at their laptop, whatever. So I give them credit for, for seeing how things are changing, having this category conversation around the change and, um, you know, and seeing a new opportunity that, um, and that, that's, that they last I heard that has been going great for them. So it's just a point of, of, um, you know, sometimes things change in a really big way. And, and this, this method of thinking it through can really be helpful at those times. That's a great example. I love, I love that term cloud culture. The, um, in fact, uh, Brad Stuhlberg's authors wrote peak performance and elevate your game. And he talks about eight things, you know, for peak performance you need. And one of those is he talks about, you know, strength without flexibility is rigidity and flexibility <clears throat> without strengths is instability. That, that's right. a good, that's a good phrase. I like that. So you need both. You need strength right. and that flexibility. Right, right, and right. Recognize, hey, things are different, right? Our backs up against the wall. We got to think differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that is a great uh, example. And uh, I appreciate so much, Kevin, you sharing your, your thoughts on category design and uh, wish you all the best with all your future endeavors and books. Thanks. Thanks for contributing to Fast Frontiers. And one of these days when, you know, we're actually allowed to see each other, we got to get the guitars out and, you know, play some stuff. Absolutely. We'd love it. All right, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks. All right, Tom. 
Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Bruce Bojack, Managing Director at Breakthrough Innovation Advisors. 